Oscar Combs here, and I want to put one rumor to rest, once and for all. The story is that Rafferty's goes all out for sports fans. And let me tell you, it's absolutely true. Confirmed. And fans love Rafferty's right back because the food is so terrific. Serve fresh. Serve fast. Serve friendly. Lunch or dinner. Rafferty's menu is jam-packed with all your favorites. Steaks, prime rib, chicken, ribs, delicious dishes and generous sizes that really satisfy the appetite. So come hang with the sports crowd at Rafferty's. It's the tastiest place in town. Welcome to Conversations with Oscar Combs, presented by Rafferty's. In episode 41, part one, Oscar sits down with Dick Weiss for an unbelievable discussion about college basketball. Dick has covered college basketball for over 40 years, and his knowledge reflects that. Mr. Weiss will take you on a college basketball journey, and the starting point is the Palestria in Philadelphia. Oscar and Dick cover quite a bit in this episode, including a national championship game that featured two NBA legends, the beginning days of ESPN and one ubiquitous college basketball personality, and the college basketball scandals of the 50s and how it relates to the current state of college basketball. What worries Dick Weiss about college basketball today? That answer will surprise you. Oscar and Dick will reminisce about some classic basketball games and, of course, the greatest college basketball game ever played. During the 1991-92 Kentucky basketball season, Dick spent a year with the team and co-authored a book with Rick Pitino entitled Full Court Pressure. Dick explains what he learned about Kentucky basketball and what it means to the state of Kentucky. In the vast landscape of college basketball journalism, one writer has stood the test of time in covering college basketball nationally the way it should be covered. That writer goes by the name of Hoops. This is Conversations with Oscar Combs, presented by Rafferty's, and his guest, Dick Hoops Weiss. I don't know of any human being that is known nationwide anywhere by just saying a noun, Hoops. <laughs> Somebody said, Hoops is here. No one even questions. It's that guy from Philadelphia. Dick Weiss. That's very sweet of you to say. How did you get that? It's so funny. I was in college, and I would go to every high school college game in the city. Uh, And um, Sandy Padway, who was a columnist for the uh, Philadelphia Inquirer, actually gave me the name. He went on to become a sports editor of Newsday and a, a professor at Columbia. But uh, he tagged me with a nickname, and it stuck. I You never expect things to stick that way, but it did. Uh, I think that it all came from the fact that I was probably addicted to basketball at an early age. <laughs> well... I guess there was never any question from your teenage years on that you were going to become a sports writer. No, I, th- I think you're right. And I think a lot of it had uh, came from going to the palestra at a very young age from the time I was 10. You could get a ticket on the baseline for a buck fifteen. You could get a ticket in the sideline for $3. We didn't have $3, but we had a buck fifty, And we, a lot of us... Um, I had a lot of friends at St. Bernard's CYO and a 
we used to play ball all the time. And every Wednesday and Saturday night, we used to go down to uh, the Pluster. They used to have double headers down there. And the Pluster was a magical place. It was a gym. It was uh, built in 1927. And with great sight lines, uh, it reminds me of a smaller version of Allen or a more realistic version of uh, Cameron in terms of... And being, it was home to five universities, not was, just one or two. It was, and they all had their turn in the sun. I mean, Villanova, Temple, LaSalle, St. Joe's, and Penn, all of them, since I had been covering basketball made it to the final four you know my first introduction to ncaa when i came to lexington starting the cat's paws in 1977 was philadelphia and i remember walking the street down to the campus around palestra yeah. and i thought boy i'm back in high school and we walked into the palestra the wooden bleachers and everything and i thought man this is this this is what it was all about and it's still like that today there are very few gyms that are that still exist rose hill is still around but uh, in the east coast the palestra remains one of those iconic monuments to the game i honestly believe it should be an historical monument uh, and the one thing they did for me uh I once wrote that the the Plestria is the cathedral of basketball, and uh, when you enter the Plestria, my quote is up there. So that's awesome. A, that's a big deal. If you went to someone who had studied basketball back to the 30s and 40s, and you gave them a quiz and asked them to name five iconic arenas, the Plestria, Madison Square Garden. Uh, I think definitely Allen Field House, perhaps Duke, would have to be among anyone's top ten. Yeah, and and you know I think the programs make uh, like Memorial Hall. The program makes the arena, and the arena makes the program, and 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 the gym becomes famous because of the teams that play there. What was your first Final Four? 1970, uh, it was at College Park, and the final was UCLA and Jacksonville. Artist Gilmore played for Jacksonville, and Sidney Wicks played for UCLA, and that was the year, if you remember, I honestly thought St. Bonaventure was going to win the national championship. Tiny Catholic school in upstate New York, they had a player by the name of Bob Lanier. The day, the game before he was supposed to go to the Final Four, he and Chris Ford from Villanova got tangled up and Bob Lanier broke his foot. And I honestly thought that that St. Bonaventure team was probably the best team because if you remember, it was in between uh, Kareem and, and Walton. So everybody had a chance for a couple of years to, to to make a run at it. I mean, the one year Jacksonville got to the finals, the next year Villanova in 71 got to the finals, and then Walton came along, and, you know, they won uh, two more before you, uh, they were upset by North Carolina State. But That was still during an era where 
we didn't get to see the Final Four on live television from coast to coast. No, and, 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 and any time you get a chance to see a big game like Houston-UCLA in 68, I mean, it was a big deal. The I the only time I really remember seeing the Final Four was if a local team was in it. I remember... St. Joe's got there in uh, 61. And they, so, so the Final Four back then if on TV was sort of syndicated to where the interest was at? I think so. I mean, they St. Joe's had my favorite player of all times, Jimmy Lynham, who was a little point guard. Uh, and uh, they got to the Final Four, and they played Ohio State with Lucas and lost by 30 and then came back the next game and won a triple overtime game against uh, Utah in a game with Bill the Hill McGill for Utah and a game with Bill, Billy Hoy, who was a guard from St. Joe's, got 40 in, in that game. And two days later, the scandal broke, and St. Joe's ended up losing everything. Uh, Philadelphia had a uh, history of... Uh, Great teams that were tinged by scandal. And 61, 69 with LaSalle was probably the only team I thought with the Durant and Cannon and those guys that could have played with UCLA during Al Cinder's senior year. And then 71 when Villanova got to the uh, national championship and they discovered Howard Porter had signed a uh, professional contract with uh, the ABA and so they wiped that out. And I said, you know, this this town's cursed. We're never going to win a national championship. That's why when Villanova won in 85, it was such an unusual event because Villanova figured that they had no shot against Georgetown, Patrick Ewing, senior year. Were there three Big East teams in that final four? There were. They owned, the, they owned, they owned college basketball and for that Dana year. Dana Kirk and Memphis. Yes, yes. That was, uh, there was, uh, there was around, still, around that era in the 60s and 70s, finally TV come along. Right. But I guess modern-day fans, the young millennials and so, has no idea that college basketball wouldn't be what it is today if a certain entity hadn't been created in 1979. You know, that game... And their marriage, marriage, uh, in addition to Indiana State and Michigan State, but... Right, which went on another 10... uh, That went on another 10 years in the NBA. Uh, But Michigan State and Indiana State played for the national championship, Larry Bird versus Magic Johnson, and... uh, in Salt Lake, Larry had not talked to the media the entire season, and he had t- actually turned out to be a pretty nice guy <laughs> as he got got older. And Magic just lit up the room with his smile, and you know that was a team. That Michigan State team lost seven games. It wasn't like they were the most dominant team until they had to be. And ironically, the year before when Magic played, they played Kentucky, and Magic shot two for 14. Yes. And Kentucky still barely won the game. Yes. Uh, you, you, you go back to those late 70s, and of course, ironically, by then, John Wood and UCLA was in the rear view mirror. They're, you know, it's probably this as well. I, I don't – I mean, there was a enormous appreciation for – 
the success that they had from 64 through 75, but I think college basketball really grew up when other teams had a chance to win. I mean, it was back then before the three-point shot, the team with the best big man won, and UCLA had Alcindor for three years and Walton for three years, and they won five of six championships, and Wooden, to his credit, won big, he won small, he won 10 before he retired in 75. I mean, but they they, they had a a deal in the West Coast where they really only had to play one difficult game. Let's revisit that because back during that era, only one team from a conference yeah. could events this tournament, and there were a couple years during that run out there. Especially where, the ACC. Yeah. Well, even even UCLA, and there was a couple of years when Bob Boyd went through a couple of seasons, like two oh. or three losses. And, and they, two they, of they split. They, I mean, Alcindor's senior year, they actually split with them. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and they uh, couldn't even get in the tournament. No, they couldn't. They were 24-2, and two and they couldn't get in the yeah. tournament. And, you know, think about all of the great uh, teams that, never had a chance to play from the ACC. Now it seems like the ACC gets 12 teams in every year. But back then, I mean, that tournament was so big that if you lost that tournament, you were playing in the NIT if you wanted to. I think it was 77 was the first year when you could get more than one team in, and that was just two. And it was 76 because, 76. It, because Michigan and Indiana both played in Philadelphia. Okay. And they played for the championship. Mm-hmm. Uh, UCLA and Rutgers, of all things, were the other two teams. And uh, uh, they had had three competitive games, but that was an Indiana team that was destined to go – uh, unbeaten and leave their mark on the game forever. In 79, ESPN popped up. Uh, many schools, NBC would tell other schools, which was the big station nationwide at that time, was even warning schools. I know Kentucky got a call. If you put a game on ESPN, just forget us. And the league that basically married ESPN. It was the Big East. was the Big East, and then who dominated for the next decade when the others stayed yeah. away? Uh, it's true because, I mean, NBC would do one game a week. ESPN could do 50 games they a week. They had no inventory. They could just show they, them. I mean, it was, either, it was either Gaelic football or <laughs> college basketball. <laughs> and, of course, uh, your friend and my friend got to be a happy marriage it's because – amazing. In 77, he was in the Elite Eight here yeah. at Rupp Arena playing Michigan. And then he went with the Pistons for a, a year plus. And then suddenly, as they say, when one door closes, another one opens. And boy, was that a big barn door that he walked you into know, there. And when he went there, his first day on the job, uh, he had no idea that you actually had to show up for uh, – a meeting before the game. He's walking around town, and they're trying. They're frantically trying to reach him. He walks in ten minutes. Before yes, he walked in. Yes, <laughs> but you know what? He knew how to wing it even back then. And uh, next year, it's funny. It'll be his fortieth year. And, and you know, we, we all get around to that point in time. I hope he never ever has to hang it up for a final time. 
Uh, yeah, I don't know. We are actually working on a book right now uh, on uh, um, the Mount Rushmores of college basketball in specific areas or specific fields. And uh, it's something he, I think he wants one last book. To, he loves giving them out at his. Uh, at the gala that he throws to raise money for mm-hmm. ch- for for pediatric cancer and uh, that's awesome. Uh, he he's raised a lot of money and uh, people only see him as Disco Dick and they don't realize how much he gives back to the community. You you mentioned some of the scandals in the late sixties, early seventies. We got to go back to the forties and early fifties in New York yeah. City, Boston College, CCNY, Kentucky. Uh, if that happened today, I'm not so sure the game could survive it. I'm not so sure that more people aren't cheating than we think, and I'm not so sure the NCAA isn't turning a blind eye. Because uh, they is it perhaps so great that they're afraid that they will kill the cash cow? I am. I, it is a theory that I've had for a while. I hope that I'm wrong, but you know we are watching. A market correction right now, and it just happens to be an offshoot of the sexual harassment cases that started with Harvey Weinstein. But uh, uh, it's already taken one Hall of Fame coach and put another Hall of Fame coach under a lot of pressure, Tom Izzo. We go back to Joe Paterno. Yeah. That went on for years. They come out, and like you said, Harvey Weinstein has brought this out. And it looked like it's, it, I mean, it's like a gigantic cancer. It's spreading not just in sports, but in every walk people of life. Have, I think when coaches start making this much money and programs see the ability to make enormous sums of money, Suddenly, winning takes over to a point where morality takes a second seat. You know, I, I sense the line that you're pursuing there, and there will be people who say, "Oh, Oscar, why would Coach X do this when he's making four million dollars a year?" And I, my answer is, he wants to keep making that four million a year. The expectations only get higher, Oscar. They only get higher if you, once you win big, and uh, it, you're constantly feeding the beast. And right now, with the FBI's latest run involving college basketball, you've got four or five schools that has been revealed as being a part of it, and some of them are the biggest names, you know, like you said, Louisville, Arizona, Southern Cal, Kansas, Auburn, which is having – the year of it's, their existence it's the right blue now. Snow. It's the blue snow. It's unbelievable. It's it's certainly as big as ninety nine. I mean, it's that the fact that they are winning the SEC without two of their key players. It's pretty amazing. And we don't know where this is going to go. We don't know where this is going to go. I, the thing that surprises me is it's interesting that the feds are so involved, but. We haven't really heard ever since October and the initial outrage. We haven't heard an awful lot about what's the other shoe dropping. 
and you don't know where they're playing the game to drop it during March Madness, where they're not going anywhere with it, or where they've cut deals. I think that I've seen a lot of schools who make money for the NCAA in terms of television ratings. I mean, you know, I mean, the one great line is, well, you know, they, 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 they found out X X team was cheating, so they gave Cleveland State two years. You know, just there's certain teams I think that have a uh, that get mulligans more than others. There was just a few years ago when the NCAA, some members of the NCAA, uh, the Power Five schools, said we're tinkering with possibility. Why don't we just branch off and do our own deal? Let the other 200 and some schools do it. And and I'm told that some of the CBS people went to them and said, wait a minute, you guys don't understand. What makes the tournament great is What the makes first it is Valparaiso, George Mason, the, Florida Gulf yeah, Coast. Yeah. And do you know what makes the first weekend great with the numbers that are the eyeballs that's watching them? And this is something that didn't dawn on me, but when I thought about it, it was that. It goes back to gambling. Because oh, yeah. every office in the, the country, even the beautician's office, has a pot. The biggest day in college basketball is Selection Sunday. And if you're in a pot where you put in 50 cents or a dollar at the 5 and 10 cent store and you pull out Northern Kentucky University and you live in Sacramento, California, you're rooting for Northern Kentucky and you suddenly know more about them than anybody you know till they get beat. Yeah, and the thing that scares me about it is I worry that the college game is becoming a five-week game. And I think that I worry that sports editors are starting to see it that way, and there is less college coverage in the big cities than ever before. I mean, it's almost entirely pro-oriented, and uh, they and 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 when the tournament gets close, and the bracket the brackets do more sales than anything else, uh, and you know, I mean. Then interest rises. I mean, I remember 96, the Final Four is in the Meadowlands. I mean, people were paying upwards to, back then, upwards to $2,000 for a ticket to the finals because they had $5,000 bet in an office pool on Wall Street. Let's, 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 let's go back to that Final Four because as a result of the scandal in the late 40s and early 50s, and Adolph Rupp made the famous comment, they couldn't touch my players with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> he and did. he found out they had an 11-foot pole. Yeah, they did. <laughs> uh, he swore that he would never take another team back to New York City, and he did not. And Walt Byers made the comment that there would not be another tournament played in New York City. And there wasn't one until a few years ago, and I think it was actually played in Brooklyn for the first time. Yeah, and last year uh, they had the uh, uh, Elite Eight was right. uh, in the garden. But apparently uh, Rupp and Walt Byers both stuck by their guns on that. Yeah. Uh, I don't think they were wrong, but... No, that, neither one of them are around to stop it now. No. I mean, but I just think that it, what amazes me is... 
I don't know how much interest there is in college basketball in New York, but the Big Ten has their tournament in the Garden this year. The ACC is in Brooklyn, and the Big East is in uh, is is in the Garden. I mean, it's pretty amazing when you think about how many people want to be part of New York. I know everybody gets their news and their fixes differently today than you did even 10 years ago, let alone 20, 30, or 40. But I can remember the latter years of the Coliseum here at Lexington and the early years of Rupp Arena. And any time there was a big game, Kansas, North Carolina, Indiana, Ohio State, there were always a minimum of 20 writers from big city newspapers out of the state. It was the greatest – if you covered and we all had national college beats. It was the greatest to me. It was the greatest job in America. When I got a chance to go anywhere I wanted to go to see the biggest games played in the biggest venues and with the most with 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 the most uh, excitement attached to them. I mean, it was fabulous. But it's all changed now. I was really the last writer from a newspaper who was traveling nationally. Now, Chuck Culpepper, of all things, used to work here. Yes. Is now working for the Washington Post, and he does their national college beat. It's the first newspaper that actually reintroduced that beat in a long time. But when I left, I was the only writer, and I would go to Duke and— and 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 Carolina, and they used to have fifteen to twenty writers there every year, and it used to be a big thing. And you'd be on press row with all of the writers from Tobacco Road, but not many writers from anywhere else. And I think times have changed, also to the fact that you know ESPN and occasionally. Uh, Sports Illustrated, I mean, with the digital stuff, and CBS, sometimes Sporting News um, will show up at a big game. But for the most part, you're on your own. I used to walk into a press room, Oscar. I used to, I mean, this is in football and basketball. If it was a big game, I know 100 people. Now... I walk into a press box uh, at a football game like uh, the national semifinals or the championship game. Championship game, there's still people that I know, but the semifinals, it's both local schools and very few other people. Your favorite Final Four? Oh, I guess it'll always be Villanova because no one thought it would ever happen. I Pretty also, phenomenal shooting that night. They shot... 78, and they shot, was it 90 in the second half, 9 for 10? I mean, uh, they had to play the perfect game to win, and they did. I, 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 that game had a lot of auxiliary drama connected to it. The day that they played the game, Al Severance, the longtime Villanova coach, died. And that really left a, a huge 
feeling in the in the locker room. And Jake Nevin, the longtime trainer that used to sit on his shoebox before every game at ALS, and he was in a wheelchair. And it was almost like everything fell together. I still remember Harold Jensen walking up to big three throws down the end of the game to give Villanova the points they needed to win and stopping by Jake and Jacob was like 78 and with a face that looked like the map of Ireland and and uh, Harold patted him on the head and said this one's for you Jake and he made both three throws and uh, after the game I still remember it was, the game was played in April 1st and after the game, I still remember Ed Pinckney and Dwayne McLean running over to press row, getting on top of him and screaming, April Fools, <laughs> because no one could believe it happened. And, you know, Villanova was probably the one team that could have played Georgetown because the, the kids all knew each other. Villanova had a lot of New York kids. Washington, I mean, D, uh Georgetown, a lot of D.C. kids, they had all played together up at Five Star. They all knew each other personally. But there was no fear of the uniform the way there was so often when Georgetown took the floor. Biggest upset you ever personally watched? Uh, well, that's a good question. I would say Notre Dame and UCLA, uh, 74. Uh, UCLA had won... 88 straight games. The game is at Notre Dame. And the thing that always struck me in that game is Wooden was so confident he refused to call timeout when the game was getting away from him. And uh, Digger Phelps that year, the week of the game, ended every practice with having his players cut down the nets. And uh, Dwight Clay makes a jump shot to win the game. And... uh, uh, I don't think the UCLA kids to this day believed it. I don't think they believed it really happened. I mean, I think they really thought that they were invincible. They might have been. They might have been. Other games that I would call big upsets, hmm. you know, to this day, it's still hard for me to believe that Connecticut beat Kentucky in 14. I always I thought that that was a lock for Kentucky, but it's funny. John, as good a coach as he is, has always been influenced at times by people that he played against: uh, Bruce Pearl, uh, Bob Huggins, uh, Jim Calhoun, and even though Jim wasn't the, the coach at the time, he was in the locker room for every game that year. You talking about when Ollie won it? Yes, and he was there, and uh, it was like a curse. <laughs> I mean, because that, that that's a that's a that's a game that I think Kentucky should have won. I think John should have at least two. Look, he could have won. He could have won in 08 uh, against Kansas. Free throws. Well, Ch- Chalmers shot. Yeah, he didn't didn't take away the three to force overtime. I think he could have won in 2011. They just got up and shot a god-awful percentage against UConn in the semifinals after playing two 
brilliant games against Ohio State and and and, and, Carolina. and Carolina. And frankly, 2015 when they lost to Wisconsin in the semifinals, I to this day it's easy to second guess. But you want to always wonder what would have happened if Ulysses uh, and Booker were on the floor. <laughs> the best college player you ever saw play in person? Uh, probably Walton. I mean, I was there the night he shot 21 for 22, had 44 points in St. Louis against Memphis. I mean, you can't get more close to perfect. And he was so fundamentally sound, and he had such an ability to take away so much of the floor defensively because because of the way he moved on the floor. I thought he was the most fundamental sound player. The most exciting player I ever watched, David Thompson, because of his vertical leap. Ironically, I want to say, say Michael Jordan, but I don't think he was. A, I think that there were times when Coach Smith held him back, and I don't ever knew that he got a chance to be Michael. The kid that I think most people were happiest for that he became a star was David Robinson. His performance, you obviously were there for his performance uh, down here at Kentucky when the Kentucky fans gave him a standing ovation. Yeah, it he, must was, have been wonderful. he was awesome. And, a, and a wonderful human being. I mean, yes. he actually came back that year, Hoops, you may not know this, but after it, uh, the governor started a program with sports figures and stars called Champions Against Drugs. That's so great. And they had him to come during the state high school tournament. And give out little sports card. I mean, they had everybody from Pee Wee Reese to That's so great. all those uh, Mark Higgs, Rex Chapman, all those guys. And they asked him if he would come back. Now they're going to be in a tournament that year, and this is going on at the same time. And he agreed to come if they were no longer in the tournament. Wow! And Ashland Oil Company, which was a big sponsor of the high school athletics, flew a corporate praying up. They got beat the week before. They. Flew up, got him, brought him back. He talked to like 15,000 kids. I mean, it was just all class. I mean, this is the type, this is what you wish college athletics would be. Now, the guy who made the biggest clutch shots I've ever seen was Leitner. I mean, not just the, uh, and both of them were in semifinals, ironically. One was against Connecticut, and one, one was against Kentucky in that lead eight game. Yeah, and that uh, it broke my heart because I I really had a soft spot for that Kentucky team. I love those kids. I love the I love the way that they were coached. I love the way they overachieved. I love the way they shot the ball. I mean, these were the kids at the end of the bench, and they gave Kentucky so much hope and so and and they made they made this Commonwealth feel so good about themselves with their with their effort. And I still remember going back when they uh, when uh, they hung Let me the just jerseys. interrupt you there for a second to tell us a little bit back that some of our listeners are not that old, not that we're that old, but you spent pretty much the better part of a year. I loved it. I doing a book about Rick Pitino uh, in that year. What did you discover about well, you know, the not, state of Kentucky that you didn't know? I I, just, I discovered these are hardworking people who lo- who who 
who who really love basketball because it means so much and brings so much pride to the state. They want to be able to go into the factories in Cincinnati or the or the mines and talk about the game on Monday. They want they want they want to be part of listening to Kaywood Ledford. Uh, during the games if they can't get there. I mean, I met more people when I was down here that year who had never been to a Kentucky game. But it meant the team meant so much to them. Uh, and it was hard not to fall in love with that type of passion. I People ask me, and to this day I say that Kentucky fans are as passionate as any in the country. At the end of that run, no one basically gave Kentucky a change against Duke going into the game. Right. Uh, the, the, the neat thing down at Tyap and everyone's thinking, you know, they didn't get embarrassed because no one expected them to get there. And then the last half and the overtime, it wasn't a matter of a team that got beat. It was a team that won. Yeah. Play after play was positive plays. It was when 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 Sean Woods made that shot with two point one two point five seconds to play. I really thought this is it. Kentucky's going to win the national championship because they'd already beaten Indiana earlier in that that year, and they were the closest thing to a team of destiny that I had seen, and uh, I. You know, I, I remember two things about that week. One, Rick took his team to the Pluster to practice. And to me, growing up in the Pluster, that meant so much to me. It was like, this is so great. I mean, I, I, I loved this team, and I loved uh, and, I, and I loved that building. And, and, and to see the fact that he had enough... Uh, he, he had a he had a strong enough feeling for the history of the game because he actually played in the building with Julius uh, uh, back when he was in college. He had enough strong feeling for the game that it meant something to him. And secondly, after the game, I remember Mike Shishetsky going over to Kaywood and asking if he could hold the mic and talk to the Kentucky fans and just let them know how proud they should be of their team. And that was also Kaywood Lefford's last game as a broadcaster in Kentucky. I know. I, I, he, in my mind, still is the greatest college play-by-play man in the history of basketball. Were, you had access that no one else had in the media that year. It was year. great. But I tried. Was you, was, you, was you in the locker room after that game? Yeah, but I tried not to, uh, I tried not to abuse it because – there was something about being doing a book, but there was also something about the fact that there were other writers out there too. And so a lot of times after games, I just wait outside until they open the door and would go in with them because I didn't want them to feel that this was, you know, you were privileged. Yeah, I didn't want that. I just I, I just didn't want that because I knew how hard, people down here work to tell the story of Kentucky basketball. What was the locker room like that night? 
Well, you know, I, Rick, well, you know, Rick had the uh, Sports Illustrated from 1989 with him, and uh, Kentucky Shane. Yeah, and he ripped up the cover and said, "This isn't what we are. This is who we are." And you know, there were a lot of tears, and I think a lot of. I went back to the Warwick Hotel with them afterwards, and I just felt like, man, this is one team that deserved better. And it had nothing to do with Duke. Right, right. It's just that you, I, I, I the just, ultimate Cinderella story. Yeah, they really. I mean, fit. I mean, when you think about the way that they played in the SEC tournament that year, and. Uh, uh, the game against UMass uh, in the semifinals, which was a lot closer than people would like to believe. Uh, and was that the game that he got the technical? Yeah, that John, got, John the technical? got the technical. Yes, yes. Uh, but uh, but I mean that that team had such great heart, and they they were just I think they were just happy to be part of it. I don't think that they uh, they never felt entitled because he wouldn't let them. I mean, he would, and after if they had a bad practice before Indiana, they're coming back at ten o'clock at night and practicing again. But he was he was a master at Kentucky of player development, particularly in terms of shooting. I mean, the amount of shooting drills they did during that season was incredible. Over the years, changes in the game that has changed it from what we saw in the 60s and 70s you see today. You had the clock, first of all. Then you had the that was the byproduct of arguably Dean Smith's four corners. Yeah. And then you had the three-point shot. What if they'd never happened? Well, what if they had happened 20 years ago? Chris, Pistol Pete would average 60. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, if it had never happened, I think coaches would have micromanaged. I think the game probably would have been taught from the inside out as opposed to the outside in. And I think it would have been a more fundamentally sound, but... I don't think you would have had the evolution that we have now. There are some people who every now and then will say the game has got to be more about spectacular plays than what well, those we are, those are Those are obviously all the people that go to the travel team tournaments. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the dunk was outlawed because of Alcindor. Yeah. When he left, they brought it back. Would you see better play if the Ducks were not allowed today because everything's alley-oop inside? You know, I I think people have become really affected by the spectacular as opposed to the fundamentally sound. I, I think the fact that this summer there was a game with with Zion Williamson and uh, LaMelo uh, Ball in Vegas and the amount of NBA players who wanted to get into that building just to watch it 
and then the kid, then the guy threatens to pull the team off the floor when, because a female official makes a call he doesn't like. It's gotten it's gotten a little bit out of control right now, and I really believe that we need to rein it in a little bit. I still th- I think the one and done rule has created a situation where a lot of times players are marketing themselves for the next level almost from the time that they enroll in class and particularly in the second semester. And a lot of times it affects the way teams play. Expand on the one and done. Well, you know, I my my personal opinion is I like the baseball rule. I like the idea of you can either leave out of high school if you think you're good enough or you stay three years so people get a chance to know who you are and you get to learn the game the right way. Right now, there are an awful lot of spoiled 22-year-old millionaires in the NBA. No, But, you know, having said that, look, there are no rules for tennis players, no rules for golfers. If a player is good enough to play in the league, who am I to say he shouldn't have that opportunity? Look, if, I, if, I, if, I'm a, if I'm an undergraduate and the New York Times offers me a job, am I turning them down? Probably not. After all, this is America. Yes. To keep up with Hoops, you can follow him on Twitter at HoopsWeiss. You can also follow Oscar on Twitter. He's at Wildcat News. We will have more with Hoops Weiss over the next couple of episodes, so make sure you have subscribed to Conversation so you don't miss future episodes. And, of course, you can go back and listen to past episodes, too. For your Apple devices, search iTunes for Ad Wildcat News and subscribe. For Android users, you can find all of Oscar's podcasts in the Google Play Store. Search for Ad Wildcat News and subscribe. And, of course, you can always listen to every episode of Conversations by going to oscarcombs.com. I'm Bo Robinson, and this has been Conversations with Oscar Combs, presented by Rafferty's. Thanks for listening, and as always, Go Big Blue.